So here we go. Uh, on with uh, the series that we're in, uh, Love Strong. Um, and I'm just, I was so captivated. I'm still captivated by this verse uh, that the weakness of God is stronger than the greatness, the greatest of human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And we're going to see evidence of that uh, today in a really, really interesting um, uh, story. A couple different things we're going to dovetail today. Uh, one has to do with Purim, which I'm going to tell the background and story of Purim, which is a Jewish festival that is to be celebrated every year. It actually falls on Tuesday, Wednesday this coming week, uh, but we're celebrating it today, which is why you have weird communion elements. Uh, one of them you know is weird. The other one you're not sure if it's weird, <laughs> but we're weird, so you should just kind of count on that. Uh, so we are talking about uh, an ancient kingdom uh, that at its time was the largest uh, empire um, that history had ever seen before. So this is ancient Persia, and it extended from Iran all the way to Egypt and into the Mediterranean region, all the way up close to Greece, about as close as you could get. Uh, and we're focusing on one particular king, uh, King Xerxes. Here he is. <laughs> oh, no. That's not the right picture. Here he is. No, that's still not the right king. Uh, here he is. Well, maybe. So there was a movie uh, called 300. I don't know if you remember it. Um, it was kind of a violent one. It actually was about Xerxes and how he was going to try to make his way into Greece. So they kind of made him look like he was a little bit out there, a little bit uh, unplugged perhaps, and maybe for good reason, because things didn't go well for him. He had like a bridge made so they could get across the channel to enter and fight Greece. And when he finally got there, it was like pre-made. Uh, the ocean kind of broke it apart as oceans are known to do. And so he gets off his horse and he takes a, a chain and a whip and he goes into the surf and he gives the ocean 300 lashes. <laughs> while his men are looking on as if, you know, to tell the ocean, take that, I mean business. Well, it didn't really do a whole lot for him, and everybody kind of knew he was, he was who he was. So anyway, I can't look at that guy too much longer. So let's go with this one, uh, Xerxes the Great, the king of Persia, and tell you a little bit of story about him. So he came into power in 486 before Common Era, B.C.E., uh, after his father and grandfather uh, were kings before him. And uh, he, this might sound weird, but he had the benefit of a military campaign early on in his, in his reign, which allowed him to show his military prowess and his leadership, which also got everybody to, um, to be respectful of what he was going to do as king. Well, after that happened in Egypt, he made his way back to Susa, uh, which is in present-day um, Iraq, uh, or actually Iran, um, and uh, wanted to have a big party. So he has this amazing festival. It lasted several days, and it was all opulence. He just wanted to show everybody how rich he was, how powerful he was, people from all over the world. Uh, dignitaries came to just gawk, you know, at how much money he had. One of the things that he loved uh, was his queen, Queen Vashti. Uh, queen Vashti was really, really beautiful, as you can see. And I don't know who she is. But anyway, she's, uh, uh, could be, uh, Queen Vashti. And he was so enamored with her that toward the end of his, this particular feast, he had a, way too much to drink. And he was talking so much about how beautiful Queen Vashti was that he asked his servants to go fetch her and bring her back so everybody could see just how beautiful Queen Vashti was. Now, Queen Vashti was hosting her own thing. Uh, for probably dignitaries, but women. 
So queens of other countries and that sort of a thing. And so when she got word that uh, the king wanted her presence, she said no. <laughs> Which is what my wife would say. <laughs> well, that did not make uh, the king very happy. In fact, he was infuriated. So he sent them back again and says, no, no, tell her I'm really serious. She's got to come. And again, she sent back the message, no. Now, we have no idea um, what was going on in Queen Vashti's mind. We're never given that answer in the book of Esther, which uh, we're working through here. Uh, it could have been a very good reason. Maybe she was striking friendships in accord with other queens of distant lands that was going to benefit uh, Persia. Uh, maybe somebody, a dignitary, was pouring their heart out to her, and for her to leave at that moment uh, would have deeply offended her and caused problems for Persia. Maybe she knew that when her husband drank too much, he acted like an idiot, <laughs> and she didn't want to be involved with him being an idiot, <laughs> and just said, no, I'm not going to add to your embarrassment and be embarrassed myself. We don't know. But probably, women, am I right? She probably had a very good reason for saying no. Yeah, right. Well, uh, poor, uh, poor King Xerxes, uh, unfortunately, because he was drunk and all of his advisors were probably equally drunk, um, they weren't thinking straight either at that moment and decided to make a rash decision. And all of the manliness that they could muster suggested to them that if we let this infraction go, wives everywhere, all over the empire, are going to say no to their husbands, and we can't have that. So they deposed her. She was no longer queen, and she was no longer allowed audience with the king. So they basically stripped her of her power. Not seeing the king anymore, the queen was probably fine with that. <laughs> but a very, very big mark and, and a major overstep. So this was an, an injustice. And what I want you to see so far is that you have Queen Vashti here who did an incredibly brave thing. She said no to the king. And I think we can probably surmise that she knew exactly what risks she was taking when she said no to the king. But she did it anyway. Well, uh, the next day and a few days after that, King Xerxes is feeling uh, bad about this and wondering, did he make the right decision? But before he can uh, dare to muster the courage to be empathetic and say, I'm sorry, <laughs> which many men struggle to do, including myself, um, his advisors came and suggested that instead of that nonsense, let's go after a new queen. And we'll have a beauty pageant for all over the land, and you can see all kinds of beautiful women come before you, and perhaps the next queen uh, will be there. Enter Esther. Uh, she looks way too British, so let's, uh, let's get rid of that Esther, and let's go for this Esther. All right. Uh, she's actually from Turkey. Uh, she's an American actress, but uh, from, from Turkey. And uh, so she is a Jewish woman uh, living in and around Susa, and she is advised uh, to get in this competition uh, for the heart of King Xerxes. She went under a full year of beauty treatment in the land. All kinds of stuff that they did, 12 months of it, uh, to try to get her as healthy and well and all that. And finally, all these different women uh, went before King Xerxes, and he got to make his selection. She took the advice of the advisors who were available to her and did exactly what they said. And when Xerxes saw her, he was blown away and decided, this is the one for me. 
and made Esther the queen. She was Jewish, remember. Uh, her cousin who became her adopted father, Mordecai, because her parents both died. This, by the way, we're now in 479 uh, before the Common Era. Uh, Mordecai, uh, her now dad, uh, learned that there was an assassination uh, attempt brewing uh, for King Xerxes, and he alerted the king's um, advisors that this was going to happen, and it saved the life of King Xerxes, which he would later be very, very appreciative of. Uh, time went on, and this really bad guy named, um, in Hebrew it would be called Haman, but in English you hear his name pronounced Haman. Uh, he was an anti-Semite uh, to the max. He hated Jewish people. He wanted to eradicate Jewish people. Mordecai actually drove him crazy because any time Haman would come around, he demanded that everybody bowed down to him to show how much power he had and how they should bow down to him because of his power. But Mordecai wouldn't do it. He would never take a knee to bow down toward Haman. And it drove him crazy. So much so that he wanted to wipe him out. He wanted to kill him. And he went to his family so grieved about how awful Mordecai was in his disrespect to him that they encouraged him to build a gallows 70 feet high to hang him from it. So Haman got a little relief from that. Now he also had another plan. And Haman's plan was not just to deal with Mordecai, but because of Mordecai's insolence, wanted to wipe out all Jewish people in the entire empire. This is called a pogrom. And many pogroms have been attempted throughout history. The one that we are keenly aware of was in World War II under uh, Hitler's Nazism. So this happened early on, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Mordecai hears about this plan through one of the advisors of the king. And he tells Esther, you've got to do something. You've got to talk to the king. But in those days, you couldn't just knock on the door or text the king and say, hey, you up? Can we have a conversation? It was a very big deal. And she couldn't demand audience with the king. The king had to invite her into his, uh, into his throne space and have her touch his scepter, which is sort of like giving the mic. And she couldn't, she couldn't violate that or her route would be the way of Queen Vashti. And so um, she heard about this. She knew she had to do something. One of the greatest lines from this book is Mordecai says, who knows, maybe you were born for such a time as this. And so she's deeply anxious about this whole thing. She tells Mordecai, okay, we'll do this, but I want you to do something for me. Go tell all the Jewish people around, in and around Susa to fast with me for three days. Focus on what's about to happen. Meditate on this. You know, all this. I'm going to be fasting, not going to be eating food to prepare for what's coming. And so everybody does this. And on the third day, she finally gets all dolled up, puts on her crown and stuff, and hangs out outside the throne room, hoping that the king will see her. And he does. And once he, he sees her, again, he's taken with her beauty and says, My queen, uh, enter, that I may see you. And he comes, she comes in, holds out the scepter, uh, which is an invitation, so she touches it, which allows her to speak. And what does she say? She doesn't say, let me tell you, sir, uh, you've got a criminal on your hands. We've got to take care of business. He doesn't, she doesn't say that. She says, may I host a banquet for you and Haman. Would that be all right? After he says, I'll do anything you ask. So, of course, he's fine with a simple banquet that very evening. 
So she hosts a banquet for uh, the king and Haman, this anti-Semitic guy who's behind the pogrom, who, by the way, by this time has talked to the king about his idea, and the king has given him full authority to wipe out Jews everywhere in the empire and to plunder their belongings after they kill the men, women, children, and their livestock. I mean, it's really, really awful. And so the first banquet comes. The king asks again, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom if you want. And Esther just simply says, can I host you for another banquet tomorrow night? And the king's like, huh, different? Okay. So Haman goes home. He thinks that, you know, he's the superpower now, and he's going to come back to a second private banquet with the king. Uh, so feeling pretty good about this. They go back to the second banquet, and Esther reveals what's been going on. Says, you don't understand. My people are about to be completely slaughtered. All Jewish people everywhere in your empire are about to lose their lives, including my own. This upsets the king. Now this is personal to him. And so he says, who is behind this mastermind program? And Esther says, that guy, Haman, your right-hand man. He is the one who is trying to kill my people and eventually myself. Can you imagine the risk factor here that she had to go through? Herself, a woman uh, who had few rights back in her day, is essentially challenging the king's authority, the king's decision, because he's the one that empowered Haman to do what he was going to hopefully do. She takes the risk. The language changes uh, in the scene if you read the book of Esther. It becomes clear to Haman that his goose is cooked. And before you know it, by that night, Haman's life is ended, being hung on the very gallows that he crafted for Mordecai. Quite a twist. And not just him, but his sons as well. To send a message to everyone, this is not going to take place. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because the edict, uh, this, this announcement to the whole empire had already been made. So uh, Esther, again, this time, uh, begs before the king, really puts herself out there to say, my king, there's just one last thing. Uh, this statement is on the books. The law is, is going to happen. And if, if you don't help me, my people are going to be slaughtered left and right. People are sort of looking forward to it. Part of the idea was that Haman uh, got his own pockets lined uh, with, uh, with bribes from different people who would have rights to access and wipe out different Jewish people all over the land. So he became extremely wealthy, even from the king's coffers, uh, at the expense of all these Jewish people and what was going to take place. Long story short, the king says... Do whatever you need to do. Write whatever you need to write to right this wrong. And so they wrote it up to say that the Jewish people everywhere in the empire could defend themselves as much as they needed to against what was going to come down. It's not like they had the Internet, right? And you could just send out a blast and everybody knew, oh, yeah, the first plan was off, so everybody stay home. Everybody had made plans by this point to figure out who they're gonna, whose land they're going to take, whose people are going to get wiped out. So they saved the day, and ever since then, at the end of the book of Esther, uh, we are told if, in the Jewish tradition that we are to celebrate Purim, uh, sort of a casting of lots, uh, because the Jewish people missed it by that much of getting wiped out. And so what you have today uh, are uh, some of the celebratory uh, things that you would have if you were in the Jewish tradition. One is, this is called uh, Haman's Pockets. And uh, deep gratitude uh, to Marcia de la Santa 
and Danny Newman for making us all hamen pockets. These are also gluten-free if you're watching out for that. And uh, right here we have, um, I couldn't find sangria, uh, so uh, we settled for strawberry daiquiris, non-alcoholic, all right, so sorry. Uh, but uh, because it's festive and it's a celebration feast about how there was a pogrom against the Jewish people and instead it became a celebration. God turned the tables, or actually Esther and Mordecai turned the tables on what happened. So if you will right now uh, with me, uh, raise a glass in celebration of these two incredibly brave women. First, Vashti, who probably ended up empowering women everywhere to stand their ground as much as they possibly could. And next to Esther, who laid it all on the line so that she and her people would live to see another day. Huzzah! Huzzah. All right. Hmm. I think that might become regular fare here. That's pretty good. <laughs> And the Haman pocket, which recognizes uh, that the one who turned to greed, uh, who was all about himself and didn't care for the humanity of others, he was all about himself. He lost, and so we're grateful uh, for that. So enjoy eating Haman's pockets. You don't have to take that in one bite, just eat it as long as you want, because we have another story to look at. Mmm. Mm, man, that's good. Okay, you keep enjoying eating those. Now we turn our attention to another story. Now what I want to tell you, in case some of you are new to the book of Esther, first a question. I don't know if you noticed, but Cinder's songs today, I gave you the lyrics because I thought the lyrics were so strong and powerful, I wanted you to take them home. Um, I knew that uh, Cinder is battling cancer. That brings a whole different gravitas to her writing. Then she tells us she wrote all this stuff in the last six months. It's like there's a message here. Uh, she's got something to say. And she says it really well in the lyrics. So I wanted you to have those. But maybe as you were sitting here listening, you were like, oh, Pete, it's like you're taking us back to Motown stuff again. And that day where you forced all this, you know, Nat King Cole on us. And none of the songs had God in the lyrics or spirit or Jesus. None of that was there. You did it to us again. How many times? Is it possible that you can have deeply spiritual uh, communication, lyrics, messages, without ever having to say the word God or Spirit. Did you know that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not once use the word of God or any reference to God whatsoever? And yet it is in the canon. He who has ears, let them hear. Well, now we're going to look to a different passage that is full of spirit talk. And we catch up with Jesus early in his ministry. And um, the next few weeks, by the way, are all out of the Gospel of John, which is kind of my wheelhouse. I did my doctoral work out of this, so I'll try not to talk too long because <laughs> I could go all day on the Gospel of John. But this one's at the beginning of his ministry. And there's a guy from the same uh, rabbinical camp as Jesus, a Pharisee. from Nor <clears throat> All of them lived in northern Galilee. He was there uh, in Jerusalem probably for a feast, maybe for more, because <clears throat> he served on the Sanhedrin. His name was Nicodemus, and he wanted to check out Jesus. Who is this upstart that's come down uh, for the Passover? So here we go. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night, he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know <clears throat> you're a teacher straight from God. 
No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on them, on it. So first thing, I want to point out just two things. Uh, <laughs> first thing is very clear by his introduction that he's kissing up to Jesus, right? Uh, he wants to put this guy at ease. He's there on a scouting mission, uh, but he wants to, you know, inflate him a little bit so he'll be at ease. The second thing I want you to know, though, is the time of day that Nicodemus decided to go meet with Jesus. He's not meeting him outside the temple in broad daylight where everybody can see him having a conversation. He's meeting him at wherever Jesus is staying under cover of darkness. Now, the Gospel of John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more newspaper-type reporting, John wrote his decades later. He's more interested in theology. He's more interested in metaphor. So themes of darkness and light are a big deal to John. Here you have not only Nicodemus is coming under cover of darkness, he himself is in darkness. He doesn't see what's going on. And any reader uh, who are the first audience, when they would see that Nicodemus is in the dark, literally, this would be an illusion of what's about to come. And they were right. So after he kisses up a little bit, Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Take it from me. Unless a person is born from above, it's not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. Uh, another more uh, Different kind of translation that you may be familiar with that Jesus says, unless you are born again. But the more correct uh, interpretation is, unless you're born from above. Well, this does not make sense to Nicodemus. So he says, how can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying with this born from above talk? And Jesus says, <clears throat> you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom, God's realm, if you will. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a baby you can look at and touch, but the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch, the spirit, and becomes a living spirit. So that's really provocative, by the way, because Jesus is saying then that, in essence, human people are incarnate, that we are a mixture of flesh and bone and the Spirit of God. You are more sacred than you give yourself credit for. So he goes on, so don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone. Born from above by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus asked, still in the dark, what do you mean by this? How does this happen? And Jesus said, you're a respected teacher of Israel, and you don't know these basics? Uh, listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. Remember I talked about Jesus' Satori moment that changed the way he thought about everything? I think that's what he's talking about. Remember, Jesus was in the Pharisee camp. He knew the lingo. And now he's saying stuff that doesn't make sense to that camp anymore because Jesus has experienced something else. He says, I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. 
Yet instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you of things you can't see, the things of God? He finally continues, No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from the presence, the Son of Man. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real eternal life. Now, in a moment, I'll talk about eternal life and what that's about. But you need to remember this story. This comes from uh, the Exodus story. As the people of Israel are escaping from Egypt's slavery, they're in the wilderness for 40 years, learning what it means to be the people of God, to trust God. And they mess it up a lot. And one particular instance, um, now you've got to take this with a grain, grain of salt and appreciate the context of the time in history. We're talking like 1400 BCE. They thought about the world differently, not like us. So they had a very, what I would say, an early understanding of God as wrathful judge up there somewhere. So it's just a very different culture. And so they kind of let things run amok in their trust with God. They didn't follow the rules, so to speak. And so in their experience, really bad things started to happen, including all these venomous snakes started coming out of the woodwork and attacking them and killing them. And so Moses pleaded on behalf of the people who now recognize maybe we shouldn't have done all that stuff. Now they've changed their tune and said, Moses, plead for us that we'll live. And so Moses goes to God and says, okay, they've decided to turn it around. What should we do? And God's solution is, Take the thing that was supposed to be a sign of death, wrap it around a pole, hold it up. Anybody who looks at it will experience healing. The modern staff that we have of the medical staff is based on the same thing all the way to today, that we would find healing. So at the end of Jesus' life, he is going to be lifted up on a cross. And there's something about, we'll talk much more about this on our Monday Thursday service, but there's something about us looking upon this instrument of death and this one who is choosing to die in this way that somehow brings healing to us. It's really deep and profound. And it has a little bit to do with this eternal life. Now, unfortunately... Uh, in our country's history, um, a particular uh, branch of Christianity, which is a very narrowly focused uh, form of Christianity that forces us to uh, say that the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, uh, has us say things about Jesus that I really don't think he would say about himself, has things say with certainty, things about the afterlife, which I also don't think Jesus would agree with. Um, but in this particular uh, branch of Christianity, if you don't believe those things, um, you're, you're going to hell. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so if you, if you don't hit those five uh, fundamentals, uh, you're, you're in tough shape. As this faith grew and became prominent in the United States, there was one particular verse that came through. We're going to look at it in a second. It's, For God so loved the world, that, whoever, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe it in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And this was on Billy Graham Crusades, 316 was at football fields. And the intimation of this was simple. <clears throat> you say yes to Jesus, you get your sins forgiven, which means you get to go to heaven. It's your golden ticket. And so a lot of people just simply looked at it that way. 
which was a mistake. One of the reasons it was a mistake is because the eternal life that was being talked about in John 3.16 was not heaven at all. Uh, Wendell Berry has a poem uh, that if you're following the Lent thing that I gave you, um, his poem this week was just genius. He says, Eternity is not infinity. It is not a long time. It does not begin at the end of time. In its entirety, it always was. In its entirety, it will always be. In its entirety, it is entirely present always. Eternal life isn't something that's coming. Eternal life is a reality now. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the realm of God, the realm of the spirit, which is always, always now. I love the song about living for today because you don't have yesterday anymore and you don't have tomorrow. That's somewhere beyond. You have now. And what Jesus is saying is right now <laughs> you can experience something of the presence of God here in this life right now. Well, Jesus goes on and he says these two famous verses, which are great verses and say so much. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need to be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. That is the definition of salvation, my friends. Uh, we, uh, so my doctorate was in soteriology, the study of salvation. And what I found out was that our understanding of salvation was incredibly small, and so small that it's horribly inaccurate because we made salvation all about the afterlife and got obsessed with that. I get to go to heaven someday. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, well, great, but what, I really came for your life right now. You know, the, the, whatever's next, that's sort of like a bonus. But right now, I really want you to live. I want you to thrive, have a whole and well and lasting life. <laughs> So I think Jesus would be rolling over in his grave uh, if, uh, if, if that was possible. Uh, and so, <laughs> so really problematic. So look at what Eugene Peterson said there in his translation. Any, so that anyone can have a whole and lasting life by believing in Jesus. Now what does that mean? Now in our Western mind, that just simply means that we tick the box. That if I ask you, okay, raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. Everybody raises their hands like, okay, yeah, I believe in, in Jesus. What that means for us culturally is that we have given mental assent to the idea, the construct of Jesus. That, okay, yeah, I believe in him as a historical figure, and we're good. But that's not what the Greek word belief means. And the Greek is what we have that we're working with. Because in the Greek world, belief really refers to a combination of things. One of those things is our mind. That we believe with our brain, yeah, I believe that this historical person had something to say. But then it also had to do with our heart and our passion about, no, I don't just believe this. It's like, it's like uh, believing in marriage to my wife. I can believe in the construct of being married to Lynn. I made a legal decision to be her husband. But that doesn't make a marriage. I love my wife. It's the love that makes the marriage. Strangely, she still loves me too. <laughs> so there's a passion thing here. There's just, there's a mental ascent, but there's a passion with it. And finally, uh, the other leg of the three-legged stool and the Greek understanding of belief is what you do with your life, your hands and feet, your behavior. So what Jesus is saying here is, 
It's when you go full into this thing about walking with God, which is what Jesus was trying to teach and talk about and model. That's when you experience this whole, this well-being, this wholeness. That's what it's all about. Jesus continues. He says, and just to be clear, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger to judge us, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. All of this that was being talked about was going against a basic premise that a lot of Jewish people at that time had come to think about because it makes sense in your mind. If you're, if you're living in the world and you think, okay, God is not protecting us, we've obviously not held up our end of the deal. So we have to hold up our end of the deal better to get God to hold up God's end of the deal. They were thinking transactionally. We do our part so God does God's part. What we don't realize is that when we choose transaction, we're actually becoming gods ourselves because we're saying to God, if I do this, your Bible said you will do that. You see what I'm saying? It becomes a weird control thing. But what Jesus is talking about is this, that faith is not meant to be about transaction. That's so counter to everything Jesus was about. But faith is meant to be about transformation. And to get to those things require very different things. You're not going to have a good lasting friendship or marriage if it's just simply going through the legal check boxes of the do's and the don'ts. You have a good friendship or marriage because of the relationship. And Jesus is giving us guides to that relationship using images that are elusive like wind, harnessing the wind, going with the wind. Well, you might wonder to yourself, all right, well, if this is all about interpreting the wind and capturing the wind like a sailor would capture the wind and moving along. Who's to say that Lauren right here isn't going to have some wild hair idea and say to himself, well, I am certain that all Giants fans are the best in the world and all other, which is true, but all other baseball fans, you know, really need to be tortured at least a little bit, you know, no hot dogs in the stadiums or something, you know, we can start small. And you might say to that, well, that's an interesting idea, Lauren, but he's saying, but the Spirit of God has told me this. So how do, we, how do we warrant against such things so that anybody who has, has a whim just all of a sudden decides they can say whatever or do whatever and become some kind of mad leader? Well, the key thing here is what Jesus said. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that by believing in him in a comprehensive way, we can have a whole and lasting life. It's the love of God that makes the difference. Tom Ord, who you know if you've been around Crosswalk too much or not enough <laughs> or a while, he defines uh, love this way. To love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. If this is our guiding principle, if this kind of love is the way we think, that eliminates a lot of nonsense when it comes to interpreting the Spirit. This comes out of his book, Puriform Love, by the way, which we have for sale for 10 bucks back there on the table. You're welcome to grab it. I'm not going to do a whole series on that book because it's a little too academic for that. It's a friendly academic book. Uh, it's not, a, not an easy read necessarily, but it's not a super difficult read. So I want to make available to you, and this is, this is the premise of Tom is how do we understand what the nature of God is and how to interpret what we're supposed to do? Well, it all comes down to love. Is 
the love of God? Is our love for God, ourselves and others, is that the driving principle that helps us know what God might be guiding us to do? Now here's the thing that I want you to know. That in that book of Esther, which I gave you a brief overview, um, while it never mentions God, it never mentions the Spirit, wouldn't you agree that the work of the Spirit of God was all over the place? Did you know that, you know, I, I'm talking about three feminine uh, characters today. We first talked about Queen Vashti, then we talked about Queen Esther, and there's a third feminine character that shows up in this exchange with Jesus. Did you catch it? It's the very Spirit of God. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the language to describe the Spirit of God is feminine. Isn't that provocative? In an ancient text, part of what we theologically think of the Godhead is feminine. I think the feminine was clearly at work in the book of Esther. I think it was this divine feminine, the Spirit of God, which is everywhere all the time. You can't not be in it, in the presence of God. I think it is what gave Queen Vashti her bravery to say, whatever, my decision, I'm choosing to do this for good reason, and it could cost everything, but this is the right decision for whatever her reason might have been. That took great courage for her to do it. The easy thing would be to give in to the lizard brain, which is just say, okay, well, here we go again. I'm probably going to get grabbed and stuff, but I want to keep my life. But something deeper called her to say no. Queen Esther, her lizard brain absolutely would have said, keep your mouth shut about your Jewish heritage. We're just going to keep this to ourselves, Mordecai. Uh, don't let it be known. Although Mordecai made it clear uh, where he was. He was toast. She could have easily just saved herself, but she didn't. There was something else in the air. There was something else that was moving her to have such courage to act the way that she did. Twice, three times, two banquets and a final plea to save the whole, the whole tribe. It's incredible. I believe that the Spirit of God is all over the place whether or not we put language to it. I think it's like this. Like fish swimming in water, we live in the wind of the Spirit of God. And if you were to ever ask a fish, tell me everything you can about water, the fish would simply say back to you, what is this water you're talking about? And I think it's the same for us. We, we live in this thing. Whether or not you have the eyes or the ears or the heart or the sensitivity to it is another thing. But Jesus is saying, it's here. <laughs> it's eternally now. You're not waiting for someday. It's now. So experience it now. And so my questions are, how will, you, how will we develop ears to hear the still small voice beckoning us to boldly love? Because we know that's going to be the undercurrent of this constant flow of the wind of the Spirit. And how will we flow with the wind of the Spirit uh, today? And so my final deeper question for you is what is love calling you to do today? Is there a trouble spot in your life? Is there a joy spot in your life? Is there a blah spot in your life? Just pick one. What is love calling you to do? And trust that the wind of God is in the mix to lead you, to guide you, to strengthen you, to give you courage where you don't have it. This is our possibility. This is our hope. 
Uh, in a moment, I'm going to lead you through a uh, very brief meditation, and then uh, we're going to close our, our time today with uh, a prayer uh, that was written by Teresa of Avila, who was named a doctor of the church. She lived from 1515 to 1582 and was one of our mystical ancestors in our faith and was absolutely brilliant. And she wrote a prayer that we're going to end with in a few moments. But before we do, uh, would you join me by closing your eyes and just taking a deep breath? I want to remind you, you do not have yesterday anymore. Tomorrow isn't here yet. The only thing you have is right now. So be here now. You don't have to wait for the presence of God. You are already in it. The presence of God is loving and kind, is with you toward every part of wellness that is possible in your life. And not just you, for every human being, for all of creation itself, this is what God is after. Rest in that reality. God wants you to be well and whole. Is there any part of your life right now that is not well or whole? Just identify one of them. It could be your physical health. It could be your mental health. It could be relationship stuff. It could be work stuff. Where is it? Trusting that the wind is blowing here. What do you sense love calling you to do in response to what needs to be more well? of love. You are surrounded by love. You are supported by love. You are called forward by love. Home, whenever that comes for us, is known by love. The next loving act for you may be something about your physical health that you need to do differently. It may be about how you feel about yourself, about your emotional well-being, and it may be that maybe, maybe you begin seeing yourself as the sacred, beautiful person that you are. Maybe it's a relational thing, and you're sensing that a different tack is needed so that you can seek restoration, redemption. I don't know what it is but trust in the love of God. Spirit of God, I pray that you open our eyes today and in the days ahead that we would be aware of the winds of your spirit, that we would trust it, be open to it, capture it, ride it, because that is where life, that is where life abides, and we don't want to miss it. So if you'd open your eyes with me, 
Let's say this prayer that Teresa of Avalo wrote many, many years ago. Lord, grant that I may always allow myself to be guided by you, always follow your plans, and perfectly accomplish your holy will. Grant that in all things, great and small, today and all the days of my life, I may do whatever you require of me. Help me respond to the slightest prompting of your grace so that I may be your trustworthy instrument for your honor. May your will be done in time and in eternity by me, in me, and through me. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. I hope you had a good experience. Thank you again to Cinder Shine, and we will see you all next week.